This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. All over the world, democracy is on the knife's edge. If the West had stood up for democracy, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And at home, we're fighting for the soul of America. We walked up in here amongst hostile people. There's KKK here, there's skinheads here, there's all kinds of that stuff here. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. Don't miss Democracy in Danger, a podcast that's saving government by the people one week at a time. Find us at dindanger.org and wherever you get your audio. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your host, Kara Ongwaley. I'm Sarah Akers, the Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow here at JMU Civic. I'm Logan Ziegler, Program Coordinator at JMU Civic. I'm Leah Cervell, a Democracy Fellow at JMU Civic. And joining us on this episode is Aram Han Cifuentes, who is a fiber and social practice artist, writer, and educator working to center immigrant and disenfranchised communities. Her work often revolves around skill sharing, specifically sewing techniques, to create multi-ethnic and intergenerational sewing circles, which become a place for empowerment, subversion, and protest. Thank you so much for joining us, Aram. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I want to start, you describe yourself as a, quote, an immigrant and a daughter of a seamstress, end quote, and your art makes visible the contributions of immigrants to the nation's social, economic, and political fabric. I wonder if you would be willing to start by sharing your own immigration experience. Yeah, so I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and at the age of five and a half, we moved, me and my family moved to uh, the Central Valley in California. And yeah, and that was really, you know, so such a part of my art practice, right? In a lot of ways. Um, number one, I think, yeah, just going through the process of Im immigrating, right? Um, but also, my parents, when they were in Korea, you know, they were very highly educated, had really, you know, my dad worked at a bank, my mom was actually an artist and arts educator. So that's sort of interesting, right? And a point maybe we could talk a little bit more about afterwards. Um, but when we came, they didn't know what they would do for work, right? And um, and the Central Valley in California, especially when we moved there, there was like such a small Korean community. And so we felt very isolated very quickly. And luckily someone in the Korean community there hired them to work at their dry cleaning business. And then that's how they started to work in dry cleaning. And then my mom, as I said before, that she was an artist in Korea, you know, already knew how to sew. And so she decided to, you know, take that on at the dry cleaning business to become, you know, the, the seamstress there. And that really informs my practice, obviously, because <laughs> sewing is is such a big part of it. And I learned at the age of six, because my mom was working, my parents were working at the dry cleaners, and my mom was doing all the tailoring and seamstress work. So she was bringing a bunch of the work home. 
And so they would work like 13 hour days at the cleaners. And then my mom always had extra work that she would have to do at home. And so we would help her. Right. And so that's where at this young age, I was like ripping out bad zippers. Like she would let me practice sewing on some buttons and things like that. Right. So it is from the very beginning here that sewing became linked to my identity as an immigrant and particularly as an immigrant of color. Right. And, um, and then also growing up in the central Valley, I think was really informative as well because where I grew up, because it's like so heavily farmland, um, immigration was just so present at all times. Right. And so you know, where I grew up, it was like 50% white and 50% Latinx, right? And the Latinx community, a lot um, were undocumented, you know, because a lot are um, farm workers, right? And so I think with that being so present and visible in my everyday life, I became really interested in immigration policy um, and thinking about yeah, immigration and is specifically in the context of, you know, coming from Latin, Latin America, right, and Mexico. And so when I um, decided to, you know, go to undergrad, I went to UC Berkeley, and I'd studied Latin American studies, really focusing on immigration policy for that very reason. How does your immigration experience inform your community-based projects? And can you share how you go about building mutually reciprocal and beneficial relationships with communities and then show through your art the ways in which immigrants create spaces of civic engagement and belonging? Yeah, I mean, this is this is such a big question, right? <laughs> so I'll do my best to answer that. But, you know, I think um, the main the main ways that I start my projects is that I start things that I need or the things that I'm excited about, right? And obviously me being, you know, for many years, I was a non-citizen. I only recently became a citizen in 2018, but for over like 24 years, I wasn't, right? And so um, anyway, so I always sort of center my own experiences, right? And so for example, um, the official unofficial voting station, which is a project I did in 2016 and 2020. So the full title is official unofficial voting station voting for all who legally can't. And I started that in 2016 because I couldn't legally vote. <laughs> right. And so um, with and also with that, you know, presidential election, as many of you remember, what was so at stake was immigration policy. And so I being an immigrant was like, I really feel, you know, so I really wish I could vote, uh, particularly in this election, because what's at stake is my own safety, the safety of my family, the safety of my community, my neighbors, right, my friends. And so, and so that's when I was like, looking into who can't legally vote, right? After initially, the initial impulse was like, I want you but I can't, right? And then being like, wait, who else can't? And then finding that, you know, such a vast majority of the population can't, like 28, more than 28% of the population can't legally vote, right? And so that's where it expands, right? 
where I then look for how my experience connects to other people. And then I create projects that, you know, can, can expand to those other people where we share something, right? And in that project, it's where we can't legally vote. And so creating symbolic voting opportunities where we can legally vote. And so I think that's how, you know, the immigration experience informs my project is that it's my own experience as an immigrant, right? I'm centering myself. And in doing that, um, I'm centering other people who have similar experiences as me. And yeah, and I think um, to the later question, um, how I build mutually reciprocal and beneficial relationships with communities, um, I think that just takes a lot of time and a lot of, you know, like I said, I reach out to people that have these shared experiences, right? And then it becomes a lot of trial and error, right? Trying things out and then being like, wow, people were really not excited about that. Maybe that's not exciting for people. <laughs> Maybe I won't do that again, right? And so part of it's that, part of it's like, you know, it being able to like, you know, I think I get this question a lot because I'm an educator, right? It's like, how do you get started, right? How do you connect with other people in communities, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, I'm always like following people and organizations who are doing work that I really admire, right? Then I reach out to them and sort of like, just be present, see if I could volunteer, you know, see if like, hey, would you, I sort of have this idea that we could do together. Would you be up for that? Right. And, and then it usually goes from there. Right. Um, and then also being a very good listener, right. Is such a big part of it is like, you know, asking that question of like, hey, I made this project, like the U.S. citizenship test samplers, which I've done since, you know, I think 2014 is when I started to do workshops around, um, where non-citizens come together to sew the citizenship test questions together. And then I sell each of those for the amount of applying for citizenship, which is currently $750, I believe, $25, $725. And so, and if that sampler gets sold then I give the full amount to the maker. Um, But, you know, as I started that workshop, as I was saying, like it, it, um, was a lot about listening, right? So initially it was like, okay, would you guys like, do you even like sewing? Do you want to sew this with me? Right. And people were like, yes. And then it was like, well, let's just sew the question and answers and I'll try to sell these for the cost of applied for citizenship. And then people were like, well, I don't think that this would sell for initially it was 680, right? I don't think this will sell for $680 cause it's so plain. I want to decorate it. Right. And then being like, oh, wow, of course. Right. And then having that conversation as well of like, Hey, what do you guys like, how could this project help? Like, what do you guys, you know, would you be excited? Um, it, it isn't really about excited, but it's like, then I was hearing a lot of people talk about the citizenship test and the barriers around citizenship test. And one of the main ones being financial, right? So like people being like, well, I don't have an extra like $725 to even apply for this test, right? And so sort of listening to that and then 
recognizing, oh, like I can maybe do that through art where I could sell these for that amount and give that amount to the maker. So it's a really long answer to your question, but. <laughs> no, but that's, yeah, it's a it's, long process. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And, um, you know, I, the students in courses that I teach often ask, you know, th this exact question of how do I go about building relationships um, you know, as a future teacher, you know, that wants to do this kind of community engaged work. And so, you know, it's just really helpful to consider, you know, how we can go about this in a mutually beneficial way that, you know, universities often tend to have very extractive relationships with the communities in which they're, they're situated. And so, you know, it's really important for us to reconsider how we can go about it. And so your work is just such an amazing example of that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I, yeah, thank you for, for that. I think for sure is that so much of, you know, socially engaged work is so much about relationship building and building trust, right? And so that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of listening. Like I said, that takes a lot of um, I think, yeah, it just, it just really takes like being present, right. And available and, and showing up for your communities. And, um, so yeah, I think for sure so much of this is about that. Okay. And just to follow up on, um, the citizen test project that you talked about that has sewn into the fabric, a question from the citizenship test, um, what's the national anthem? answer being the Star-Spangled Banner, many of us who were born American citizens couldn't pass the citizenship test. I know I can't pass it. Um, <laughs> so what would you want interlocutors with this exhibit to learn and take away from this? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. <laughs> you know, I think I think there are studies that show like two and two out of three Americans who are born with citizenship could never pass the test, you know? And this comes up every workshop that I have is people being like, you know, why do why do I have to know who the president was during World War One to like prove that I'm worthy of becoming a citizen, right? And um, yeah, and this test is so difficult and it is so condescending of the immigrant commuter. It's such a big obstacle, right? So like I said, one of the main things that people talk about is the financial obstacle. But the second, but that's like sort of the second thing, right? The main thing that people um, are really, you know, nervous about and up against is that this test is just so, so hard, right? Um, and especially for people who don't speak English very well, or if English is a second language, like these just become these words you have to like remember, right? Like the Louisiana purchase, like what does that mean? Like the bill of rights, like, you know, so like, and that's really, my parents are still not citizens um, after living here for now 30 years. And that's, that's really why is because they like are so nervous about the test that they still can't do it, right? And so um, that is definitely a point, right? That that we need to discuss, right? And and see that this this test is such a barrier. It is such it's so condescending and discriminatory, right? To the immigrant community, 
And yeah, interestingly, at uh, MoCA Cleveland right now for my exhibition there, um, which is called Who Is This Built to Protect? They, they let me use their whole staircase. And so on the staircase, we put the different citizenship test questions in um, four different languages. So English, Spanish, Korean, and Arabic. And you can, so you can like see all the questions as you're walking up the stairs and the question and the title of that piece is, can you pass? Right. And so um, that I think work directly talks about like how difficult this test is. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that yeah, that's definitely something that comes up, like I said, in the workshops is is the difficulty of the test, the expensive, how expensive it is. Um, and then also in the workshops, you know, a lot of questions come about in terms of just like the bureaucratic processes of of navigating, right? Uh, not just how to apply for citizenship, but so many other things, right? Like how, because a lot of people that show up at these workshops and participate are they're non-citizens and a lot of them also end up being undocumented, right? So even applying for citizenship isn't an option. But then we get a lot of internal conversations and questions about, you know, DACA renewals and those sort of questions. And so I think, you know, that's something that this work tries to address and make present is, you know, number one, this test and how terrible it is. But just also just talking about, you know, the sort of bureaucratic violence and all these obstacles that sort of immigrants have to navigate on a day-to-day -day basis. More generally, how can art be used by historically marginalized communities as a form of protest and speaking truth to power? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really amazing question in terms of you know, the power of art and specifically for marginalized communities. Um, I have a lot to say about it, so I'll try my best to be <laughs> concise. But, you know, I think number one, um, you know, through art, music, writing, you know, we have the power to tell our own stories. And we live in a society where even just telling our own stories is such an act of protest and so radical, right? Because our stories as marginalized communities and folks, you know, are not told, they're actively forgotten, they're suppressed, perverted, distorted, oversimplified by dominant culture, right? So even that we can use art to tell our own stories becomes speaking truth to power, right? And clearly, also, by telling our own stories, we get to center ourselves and shift that frame, right? And I think, like I said, because we live in a society where most things are defined by whiteness and white racial logic, when we tell our own truths, that's when the rupture happens and we get to define ourselves and our own experiences to our communities, right? And, you know, alongside this rupture, our stories create cultural shifts that are at the core of creating larger cultural and social change, right? Um, Gage to the next point on my notes. <laughs> okay, so another way that I think art is really powerful is as you mentioned, um, 
using it as sort of this form of protest. And I, I talk about it as like, yeah, to use it to push back and to talk back to power. And particularly because I work with immigrant communities, you know, uh, and a lot being non-citizen immigrants, we often don't have the freedom or space to voice our protest without the fear of reprisal. So art can create the space under the guise of creativity. Talking back to power can also take on so many different tones, right? Such as it could be in your face, it could be strident, witty, and or subversive. And I think it's also important to recognize that we also, through art, have the ability to not even acknowledge power and to create a world for ourselves. So I think those are uh, some of the ways that art is really powerful. And I think for me, the main, the one, um, I'm going to start over again. <laughs> I think for me, one of the most powerful things about art is um, that it creates opportunities for collective gathering and making, right? So if we think about it in many non-Euro-Western cultures, art is made collectively, not by an individual. And making art together creates spaces for our knowledge that's connected through lived experiences to be shared and uplifted. And these spaces of collective making can become these radical spaces to speak, listen, validate each other, talk through our political differences, share stories and resources. We can learn about ourselves and other people, and we could playfully come up with strategies to live and fight. And I think this is so important because, of course, our society really peddles uh, individualism, right? And so I think we could push back and find as many opportunities as possible to gather, share, and make collectively. It's because in these moments, we connect, empathize, humanize, empower each other, and oftentimes even in spaces where we don't fully agree with one another. And it is important to create spaces where we can come together and connect as our complex selves and have our full selves be embraced in those spaces. So that's my long answer on the power of art. Yeah. I want to, we, we're going to share with our audience an article that you wrote entitled How Internalized White Supremacy Manifests for My BIPOC Students in Art School, um, which I think is a really valuable contribution that all faculty members really need to, all educators really need to, um, to consider um, as they are creating safe learning spaces in which all of their students can thrive. Um, but you write in this piece, making art about one's identity opens us up for the dominant culture to label our work as mere representations of our communities and peoples. Therefore, the engagement by viewers often becomes superficial and sometimes uncomfortable. The artists and our artworks are reduced to that which quoting to that which is intelligible within white racial logic. We either simplify our own work due to pressures of this internalized white racial logic, or our work gets simplified and defined for us by white racial logic. Either way, we are left in a situation where whiteness defines us. In the article, you also clearly call out how in academia and the art world at large, in these, in these spaces, research and learned experiences is prioritized over people's lived experiences. I wonder if you can just talk with us a little bit more about your critiques um, 
in regards, to, especially to um, learning and academia, and and how we as educators, especially in higher institutions broadly, can do a better job in implementing anti-oppressive pedagogical approaches and curricula. Yeah, this is a really excellent question. So I started writing this text um, because you know I've been teaching in higher education for I believe eight years now, and my classes are full with students of color, marginalized students who find me. Right? They they're taking my classes because they're really seeking safe spaces where they could talk about their identities and talk about politics and talk about, um, you know, the discrimination they face on a day-to-day -day basis at the institution. And so for me, I, I wrote this text because just every year, my students would come to me with such similar concerns over and over again. And then I kept trying to find like readings that can support them that I could be like, hey, read this, right? And, and, and make sense of this in this way. And I couldn't find any. So of course, then I'm like, I guess I have to write my own, right? And so that's how I came to write that. And I think, you know, I start the essay talking about, um, you know, all these moves for diversity and inclusion and equity within institutions, it's so abstract, right? It's talked about so abstractly. And, but I think how it gets practiced is so not abstract, right? It's like individualized, right? Like we all are a part of this and we all are accountable. So we need to examine how we ourselves as educators individually are participating, right? And so I think that was the frustration um, is that, you know, I see, I see my colleagues like talking about this so abstractly, but then being like, but how about how, what are you doing differently, <laughs> you know? Um, or how are we participating? Those kind of questions and, and, and then I get met with silence or people are a bit dumbfounded, right? And so, um, yeah, so I wrote this and, you know, I, I formatted this text with sort of quotes from what, what I would hear my students saying. So number, the first one, as you mentioned, being about labeling, right? My students have such this fear about labeling themselves as a blank artist, right? As a immigrant artist, as a black artist, as a indigenous artist, because they're constantly told they're, that you shouldn't do that because you're gonna get pigeonholed or boxed in, right? And that concern is real because with that quote you read, that does happen where, you know, then people in the art world are like, oh, then you're just a, Asian American artists, and I'm only going to read your work in that way, right? So that does happen. And then when, um, but then at the same time, I see students who are like, I'm not going to label myself that. But then, like, the critiques that they're given, they're like, oh, this is, it gets labeled on them as well. So it's sort of like, you're effed if you do, and you're effed if you don't, <laughs> right? And I think that, that is so frustrating and so, um, you know, 
so difficult for artists. And I would say like, I go through this myself, right? So it isn't just a concern for students. It's like, I experienced this myself, right? Where I get boxed in pigeonholed or I get my red, my work read in a very uncomfortable way because people are putting my identity on it and reading it that way, right? And so anyways, and so like, I, I get these concerns. Um, and so that's like one of the things that I, that I talk about. Um, another thing I talk about is, you know, just like how then if people and students decide to take on certain labels, right, then, then the next thing that they experience oftentimes is like how that label and how that understanding um, of those people by white racial logic gets then policed, right? So I talk about this example of a student who's like, can I work, make work about being undocumented when I have, when I'm at one of the most expensive art schools in the United States, I'm so privileged, right? And so being made to feel like I can't speak for myself or my community because I'm this unicorn, right? Because <laughs> I'm so privileged and I have this access. And, you know, it took a lot for me to be like, talk to the student and give him the confidence to make work about it because like that's making him recognize that that's all internalized, right? That's internalized racism. That's just, you know, white racial logic telling you that undocumented people don't have access to education. So then you're so privileged and then now you're made like you're not one of them. Right. And so that's something that I speak about as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, when, you know, students are sort of reaching and researching and trying to connect with, you know, their cultures and their identities and their communities, like I said, again, that being policed, right? Like, is that really how it's done there? Where did you teach yourself? Or where did you learn that? Oh, you had to teach yourself. Well, that's not valid, right? And so that is something else I talk about. And then, as you mentioned in the last point that I talk about is this this research, right? Where people of color are asked to be, you know, when they make work about their own experiences and their own traumas as, you know, marginalized folks, then, then they're like told it's too personal or not approachable or, um, and they're, they have to do all this work to, you know, be the researcher and the research, right? And so, yeah, in this text, I talk about how as educators, we can start unlearning these things that we, we say to our students and the way, even if they're, we don't realize how toxic they are, like what a big impact that they, these things can have. And I think, you know, I try really hard as an educator to not make any assumptions and, you know, to not, to not like put things on students without consent, right? And so sometimes it becomes sort of awkward and, and I talk about this, right? Is like, it becomes awkward and it is really clumsy at times, right? And a lot of the critiques and presentations that happen in our class, we, we like ask a lot of questions to the artists, right? Like, um, do, do you want it read this way? 
right? And can we, if you do, can we have that conversation? If we don't, we don't have to have that conversation. So like, like we're constantly, you know, I'm trying to teach my students that we need to constantly check in with each other, right? And not make those assumptions and ask questions rather than making statements, right? And so um, that's something that, that I personally am trying on a day-to-day basis to do better as an educator and, you know, and also making this space where, you know, people can call me out and that's, that's absolutely welcomed. Right. And that, um, I never received that with, with defensiveness or aggression. Right. I receive that as love and care because you guys care about me as an educator you guys care about me doing better. So that's why you're telling me I could do better and I'm going to listen, right? And so I think like those are small things that I try to do that make a big impact. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> and <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. We asked this question to all of our guests. Um, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Well, this is a really big question. <laughs> Okay, so make art, <laughs> make art with other people, um, make, like I said, make art with whoever you call your community. Um, but I think for me, what I really try to do in my own practice is, um, is really call out and ask society to like, look at, examine, and question the like neoliberal ideas and rhetoric, right? So like, for example, you know, like the voting stations, like I'm talking about people being like, we all need to go and protest. I mean, not protest, that too, that's my other project, but we all need to go out and vote because voting, we could change everything, right? And of course, voting is so important. And you, if you have the right to vote, you should absolutely do that. But we never have that side of the conversation that like voting becomes the solution and answer, but then we never have the conversation that addresses that more than 28% of the population can't legally vote. Right. And that's non-citizens, that's youth under 18. That's, you know, depending on your state, incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, residents of U S territories, people that don't have access to the specific IDs that are needed in this, the state that they live in. That's also, you know, in certain states, people who are deemed mentally incapacitated, right? And for me to even find that research and find how large these populations are, it, it's it been a process. Like, it's not out there. And I even worked with a research team at the Center for Urban Research and Learning at Loyola University. And we're finding that, yeah, it's so muddy and the population is, of course, much larger than we think it is, right? And so for me, I think, and again, where I was talking about the protest is, you know, I created the protest banner lending library because, again, this conversation of, like, we all need to take to the street and protest. And I think I was also witnessing sort of people judging each other based on sort of, like, well, you're not out there. I am, you know? And it was like, wait, why are we not – Having this conversation that also acknowledges that certain communities and sometimes like the most impacted communities, like we talk about protests as this public safe space or like that we all have the right to, 
but that's not true, right? Like, for example, working with a lot of undocumented people, like that's a that's a big risk, right? If you get arrested. Um, and so it's not, it's not safe for a lot of people, you know? And so that's why I created the participant or lending library to also have that conversation where it's like, yes, that's important, but let's also acknowledge that, you know, these vulnerable communities can't so actively do that and feel safe doing that. And so I think like, that's something that I think can strengthen our democracy, right? Is even and that term in it of itself democracy. We need to examine these these abstract terms and actually see that they're used violently against us, right? They're used to keep people invisible. They're used to cuz democracy in it of itself that word is like the idea of democracy is beautiful, right? That we all have a say that we all have the stake. However, it's not reality and it's never been reality and it's never meant to be real, right? From the very beginning, it was never meant to be real, right? Because like it was formed by the founding fathers, right? During slavery when like we were actively, right? Um, exploiting, abuse, and weren't even considering certain people as people, right? So like, I think that that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in doing in my art practice and hope that that makes an impact is like, let's question these things and see that, see who is invisible, right? Who it's making invisible. Wow, thank you so much. <laughs> We're just gonna cut it right there. <laughs> that